Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then, of course, discovered I couldn't stop. Now, lots of people can. They can make the decision. They can stop for whatever reason. I could not. I would stop for a few days, climb the walls. And then start again, even though I'd tell myself I wasn't going to do it. And and by the end, you know, I sort of, I only really had three emotions, good, bad and indifferent. And I drank on all three of them. I'd lost any sense of feeling. I didn't want to be part of the world. Um, I was very lonely. I was very isolated. um, And I was very hurt. I was hurt, tremendously hurt. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast. We've got a proper curveball for you today, and it comes with a mini story, so bear with me. We get quite a few emails from people asking if we'd be up for them coming on the podcast. Most of the time we say no, but sometimes, rarely, we say yes. Interestingly, most of the people who get in touch are men, but we come on to that later, and I'm sure you can guess why. So, not that long ago, we got an email from, in inverted commas, person irresponsible, And it was a little bit vague and a little bit elusive, and I was not convinced at all. But anyway, this lady told us the story of how she was an alcoholic who started going to AA meetings, and then on impulse ended up walking the Pacific Crest Trail, which if I remember correctly is around two and a half thousand miles. (laughs) And honestly, I still have absolutely no idea what her name is. I asked her and she wouldn't tell me and I understand and respect that she explained why very, very eloquently and succinctly and I get it. Um, It was a really interesting, totally different type of interview um, at the start but then it kind of just became a normal adventure podcast style conversation. Um, But beforehand I was chatting to Orla who's the producer on the podcast and we agreed that it was either going to be really, really interesting or totally awful and... um, I'm pretty sure it's the former, but it's up to you to decide. And as always, before we start, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Sidetrack Magazine, who are kind of our spiritual sister publication. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard me talk about this before, but Sidetrack is an amazing quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. It's a lot like us, but in paper form, with written word and photographs. The same as us, they're big believers in story over status, and their written words and images have genuinely been a massive inspiration for me over the years. And you can find that more at sidetrack.com. Also, quickly as ever, I want to push you in the direction of the Martin Moran Foundation. They're an incredible organisation who get people from disadvantaged backgrounds out into the outdoors and the natural world. It's an institution that's very close to my heart, and their backstory is something that I'm sure will resonate with many of you. So at the very least, please go and check out the foundation and you can find some links on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. And last but not least, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please leave us a review on iTunes. They really help us to reach a wider audience. 
Okay, over to the mysterious anonymous person irresponsible. So, I guess the logical place to start is at the start. And I'm excited about this introduction because it's going to be very different to usual. Um, Who are you and what do you do? And maybe why are we having this conversation? Well, nice to meet you. If I tell you, I'll have to kill you, as the joke goes. <laughs> no, my name is P.I. for the purposes of this interview, uh, and, and that stands for Person Irresponsible, which I stick with, um, and it always perplexes people as to why I stick with it. It's officially my trail name, so I'm a thru-hiker. I, I did the PCT during the pandemic. But the reason I've always stuck with my um, trail name uh, when I'm, I'm giving interviews is because I am a recovering alcoholic, and I used Alcoholics Anonymous to maintain my sobriety, And part of the traditions of being in AA is that we always maintain our anonymity at the level of press, radio and film. So it's really out of respect for the organisation that has radically changed my life and outlook upon life and and literally saved my life that I protect that um, going forward. Because I do talk about AA. I wrote a book about walking across America and I do talk about the 12 steps and how they stopped me going completely loony tunes as I walked along, Um, you know, because it was it was not the easiest thing to do. That's okay. It's very interesting. And then um, does that anonymity create problems for you at all? No, not really. A couple of journalists have sort of been, no, unless you tell us your real name, we're not going to liaise with you. And it's like, well, that's your loss. You know, it, it's, I, I don't want to be the poster child for AA because it's successful in its own right. It doesn't need a face. And, um, and it, ultimately if, if, you know, I am just me. You know, I, I've I've used that organisation to to get sober and to stay sober, and it and it's you know it's done wonders for me. But I wouldn't want people to to make that association between me and it. It is the success. I am merely the follower, as it were. Um, and so yeah, so it, it's more about you know just just showing respect really for for other people that are you know in the future who are going to come in because one of the things that I know about my own journey was I was so damn ashamed to be an alcoholic. I mean, I wasn't an alcoholic. I was a heavy drinker. It was very important you understood that. But it, I was very, very ashamed to be walking into my first AA meeting. Um, and I now look back and it's the biggest, most courageous thing I've ever done in my life um, is admitting that my drinking is out of control and there's nothing I can do about it. And I've tried and failed and tried and failed. And, um, but at the time, I was so super sensitive about this. I, I really felt like I completely failed at life. And uh, and this was just the worst of the worst thing that could happen to a nice girl like me who didn't deserve it. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's, you know, I... I I, I don't worry too much about telling people I'm in AA anymore. I did prior to writing the book. Now I've written the book, every bugger knows. And it's like, oh, no, you know, so I just deal with it head on. And um, and if they've got an issue with it, then it's their issue. It's not my issue. I'm dealing with my issue. Yeah, that was what I was going to go on to next is do you, because then I think we need some context and you can tell me a story, but um, mm. do you live two lives? So you have your home life where you you have a name, which I actually literally don't know. Um, let's go with Ruth for the sake of my my analogy but you know people know who you are and that's that and they don't know that you've written a book and all the history or not 
Most people do now know I've written a book. So, you know, the cat is out of the bag. Um, There were, you know, I mean, within my circle of friends, like long-term friends, they didn't know I joined AA. And obviously they do now. So there's a few awkward conversations been had. Um, So, no, I don't really live two two lives. Now, AA is a bit of a way of life. It sounds terribly culty, that, doesn't it? But it's, I didn't know. There's so much I didn't know until I got properly into recovery. You know, I'd grown up in quite a chaotic, chaotic sort of home, and uh, and we bounced around the world. And there was we weren't a great family at talking about emotions and feelings, and there was an awful lot of angst and anger in the family home. So I I never knew that. You know, obviously I adopted all those behaviours, and I never knew. You know, it always amazed me that other people had their life together and and they knew who they were and where they were heading and what they were doing and I was just completely baffled most of the time and uh, and I you know lived in fear of if you knew me like I knew me you'd hate me too and you know an awful lot of really self-destructive really negative critical thinking and and I you know I I just I I honestly you know I I loathed myself but I didn't know that I I loathed myself in, in that sort of really chaotic sort of thinking so um so learning so so where I am now is I don't I don't have you know like pre coming into AA I I was different people to different people if that makes sense you know you never nobody ever saw the whole of me because I even I didn't know who I was and uh, and then once I got into recovery and I what I learned you know that alcohol was just a crutch it was just a, a way of anesthetizing the pain and the glory of being me um and I you know then I actually started to discover who I was what I liked why I respected myself why I could respect other people and start to actually manage my emotions and feelings and and realizing that my thoughts are just thoughts you know they're not who I am if I have a bad thought it doesn't make me a psychopath and um so I so it, it started to put me back together and sort of started to really put me together to be honest um and so now the person that you meet is the authentic me it was the person I was always meant to be but never quite joined up prior to if that makes sense I'm a lot more authentic a lot more compassionate caring kinder nicer person than I've ever been before um so these days I'm not I'm not that fussed if you know that I've got an alcohol problem uh, because obviously I'm not drinking so I've got nothing to hide I don't do those shameful things that that you do do with drink uh, I don't do that stuff anymore because I'm not drunk anymore. And I don't have to wake up any ever again if I don't want to and think, blimey, who did I offend last night or what did I say? You know, I was one of those twats. And it has to be said, if you were wrong on the Internet, I was going to tell you, you know, and it was just I was that pillock. Um, and these days I, I just don't bother. I, you know, I just merrily go on about my life and, and I don't I don't worry so much like I used to. If that makes sense. Well, it's very honest and great to hear. I mean, it's, yeah, as I said to you before, I think it's quite clear that we can go pretty deep on this and I think we might, but I think we probably need some context. So I'll kind of, you know, sit down and cross my legs and I think it's maybe story time for how did we get here, as it were. Um, what, what do you want, my drinking story? Um, I think, I, I, I just think it would be really, it would be really interesting to hear the, 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 the progression the, yeah and and where you went and the highs and the lows and how you ended mm. up as mm, the person that yeah. you are now absolutely first drink age seven um my mother believed that if you give children alcohol they would not grow up to be alcoholic 
So as parenting philosophies go, I can't really endorse that one. Um, as I say, I, I now know um, that alcoholism tends to run in families and, uh, and I certainly got the genetic disposition. Um, but that said, you know, you know, alcohol was always around the house, so we were blind to it, really. We, it was just normal for us. Went off to boarding school at eight, if you, if you really want to stuff up your children. That put them in a boarding school. Uh, that was in England, stately home. You know, looks all lovely on the outside, doesn't it? Not so nice behind closed doors. Um, and I think, you know, it was all right to begin with. You know, I just sort of got on with it. But it was an all-girls school, and it was terribly prissy. And they they very much wanted to grow, us to grow up to be lovely little ladies. Oh, well, unfortunately, I don't think that was ever on the cards for me. You know, I like a good swear. Um, and, and, I, and I just... I just didn't like, you know, I, I was never going to be this beautiful, blonde, slim, married, a lovely banker and, and did glorious dinner parties. I, I was never really going to work for me. Um, so I always felt like I was a bit rough around the edges, if that makes sense. I didn't quite fit. And, you know, we had elocution lessons and deportment lessons. And all I wanted to do was throw books through windows. You know, I just wasn't quite right, right from the early age. I changed boarding school um, for, you know, GCSEs, I think, um, but midterm, you know, like one of those just not at the beginning of the year. So it was like partway through the year. So all of these things, you know, later on, you realise it, it just I stopped making friends at certain points because I also bounced around countries. So, you know, I'd start a school term in, what you know, where do you come from? And it'd be like, well, that country. And then, you know, at the end of the school term, it'd be like, I'd be going to a brand new country and I knew nobody. I'd lost all my pets, my home, my toys, my, do you know what I mean? With every bounce, um, you know, and I didn't realise that that was very, very traumatic for me as a child. And I had all that grief stored up and, again, didn't come from a family that, that, really was able to cope with any of that um and 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 so you know I accumulated an awful lot of as we would say emotional baggage over the years obviously being in boarding school I could smoke I got into the smoking scene because cigarettes quite easy to sort of bring into the school um but alcohol other kids drank and I wasn't obsessed with it so to some extent my mother's philosophy worked and again, went off to university, very disciplined, very hardworking, very much the overachiever. Um, but 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 I could section my life, you know, and, and I had different friendship groups. And so I was never quite at one with anything. So where my I think my genuine drinking career started was once I bought my first house or flat as it was. And on a Friday night, I used to be able to close the door on the world and have a bottle of wine. And there was this respite there's just reprieve from the stress and anxiety and, and suffering of being me and it used to switch me off and it just within a glass or two I just the world became a lovely fluffy warm gorgeous place with my party of one you know um I didn't get hangovers in those days or anything like that and very quickly I realized that one bottle wasn't quite enough I was feeling really uncomfortable like I just wanted a bit more um but, you know, you don't want to drink two bottles of wine because that's that's terrible, isn't it? Um, and so what, again, something, one of those really contrived things that I was working with chefs at the time. And one of the chefs had said, oh, if you put pink wine in into a tomato-based sauce, it gives it a real zing. So I was like, oh. So now, of course, I've got a bottle for me and a bottle for the tomato sauce. And that way I can justify buying two bottles. I 
Jesus Christ, did I eat spaghetti bolognese for an entire year with that justification? And, uh, and eventually just got away with the tomato-based sauce uh, recipes and just bought two bottles of wine. And very quickly, Friday became Friday and Saturday. And again, didn't get hangovers. And I'm drinking that really fruity, sweet wine. And uh, and then, so I'm in my early 20s. Then I met my, my husband-to-be when I was sort of mid-20s. He was quite a bit older than me. And so his drinking career was a little bit more sophisticated than mine and that it happened more frequently and he also didn't get hangovers. And so the two of us coming together just legitimised this drinking. It made the unacceptable acceptable. So all of a sudden I started missing the odd day of work with flu and, um, you know, there was, you know, always once I started drinking, there was no off switch. And I always knew that about myself, that if I have one glass, I'm just going to keep going until I go to bed and and literally pass out. Um, So I didn't drink in the mornings, never drank during the day, anything like that. Um, And even right up until the end of my drinking career, I could count on on both hands the number of times I drunk pre six o'clock. You know, I just didn't do it because I knew if I started doing that, it would become a habit because everything became a habit for me if I did it once. And it was bad for me. I loved it. And therefore I did it. Um, So he, like I say, his drinking being more than mine legitimized unincreased mine and, and I know that makes it sound like I'm blaming him he never forced me I was a very much a willing partner but it, it took away those mental sort of bars that I'd, I'd put around my drinking and and made my drinking okay um and that pretty much carried on and then um my career took off and and, and as anyone who knows that once you start going up the greasy pole, the, the, perceivably the stresses get bigger and, and the responsibility gets bigger and therefore the need to drink by, or to have a mechanism to chill out gets bigger. Um, and therefore my drinking also increased because I, it was the only tool I knew of to relax. It was the only thing that ever got my head to switch off. And, uh, and I, I just didn't know that that is just so normal that we don't all start as park bench drunks. It, it slowly, slowly, slowly increases. And, and it, sn- it slowly nibbles away at your quality of life so that perceive, you don't perceive it. it, it just those changes are, t- are minor. And that's, you know, so I'm so by the time I'm in my 30s, I'm starting to know I've got a problem, but not wanting to admit it. And and I never had to hide it because, like I say, I had a big drinking partner. So I, I never did any of that sort of like, you know, having to hide it away from from anyone because I was, you know, earning my own money to buy it for myself. But started to just become a little bit aware that my peers didn't quite drink like I drank. And therefore, my friendship group was getting a bit younger because they were still in that ex-student mode. So do you know what I mean? Those little tiny subtle hints. And it was only really when I was just about... Um, I was turning 40 at the grand old age, what a horror. And uh and my husband upped and left one day. And that was it. The the reasons to to not drink just melted away. And I just I was in so I was so heartbroken by, you know, it'd been a reasonably long marriage and and it was such a shock. And the only thing I had to 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 ease um my distress was alcohol. And I just found myself drinking and drinking and drinking most nights of the week. And I kept saying to myself, you know what? I'll stop when the divorce is over. I'll stop when this is over. I'll stop. And then, of course, discovered I couldn't stop. Now, lots of people can. They can make the decision. They can stop for whatever reason. I could not. I would stop for a few days, climb the walls, 
and then start again, even though I'd tell myself I wasn't going to do it. And and by the end, you know, I sort of, I only really had three emotions, good, bad and indifferent. And I drank on all three of them. I'd lost any sense of feeling. I didn't want to be part of the world. Um, I was very lonely. I was very isolated. Um, and I was very hurt. I was hurt, tremendously hurt. And I remember one day, you know, I the post used to come in and just put it on the side. I couldn't face looking at it. And I tripped over the cat and I was like, fuck it, I'm going to go get drunk. And then I realised, actually, it was nothing to do with the cat. I was just going to go get drunk. And I used to have to find a little sod to trip over him to justify the drink. And it just hit me, you know, I can't stay stopped. And so, as I say, I, I, I rang. Well, I rang, I read this book, which I don't ordinarily read um, sort of chick lit or anything like that. It's not not really my cup of tea. But I read this book by Marion Keyes called Rachel's Holiday about a cocaine addict that goes to rehab. And I now know I was looking for some kind of connection or identification. And, um, and you know, I'm looking at it to make sure that I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm not that bad. I don't need rehab. And I'm God bless Marion Keyes. She, um, she put a chapter at the end of that book about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and the phone number. And I rang it at 11 o'clock, gone 11 o'clock at night, thinking, you know, no one's going to answer this call and I'll be off the hook. And bloody hell, somebody answered the call and told me all about their drinking and and just said, look, go to a meeting. It's the best thing you'll ever do. And uh, and I was just like, well, you know, I'm not that bad. So um, a few days later, you know, as with all things alcoholism, you know, yes, I'll do that. And then you rush out and do nothing. And um, and so, I, you know, I, a few days later, I thought, you know what, I'll go and try one of their meetings. And uh, and it was a room full of men and they were all grey. And I was just like, no, I definitely don't fit here. And and, uh, and this was up in Scotland as well. And I always have to apologise to the Scots because I couldn't understand a bloody word that they were saying bar one or two bits, you know. And, uh, and and in AA, we always, the joke is always that, you know, nobody tells you what to do. Everything is a suggestion. But a suggestion with a Scottish accent sounds like a bloody order. And if you don't, we're going to kill you, lassie. Do you ken him? And I didn't know who Ken was or Hen was. But anyway, I nodded and smiled. But they gave me some really sage advice, which is look, always listen for the similarities and not the differences. And, uh, and literally take it one day at a time. Literally, all you have to do is get to bed tonight sober. That's all you have to do. You don't have to stop drinking for the rest of your life. You just don't need to drink today. And, um, and and you know, and go to a ton of meetings and just learn how to talk and learn how to feel again. And then when you're ready, get a sponsor, do the steps. And, uh, and that's pretty much, I'd love to say I did it perfectly. I didn't, I did it messily, but I got there in the end. But it's such an interesting particularly that finale before we go into you know you deciding to go and travel somewhere and do something you know to what extent were you there to deal with the alcoholism and which obviously you were but to what extent were you also there to learn how to communicate and how to feel and how to think and how to behave well that's the ultimate paradox every single one of us went there for our drinking and every single one of us stays for our thinking because it was the thinking that led to the drinking but of course you think of alcoholics anonymous as being all about learning how to not drink well learning how to not anything is a waste of time learning how to get comfortable in your own skin then takes away any need to drink um learning how to have self-esteem and self-respect um, and, and learning how to, to relate and connect with others. Those are skills that many of us just didn't get for whatever reason. And even if we did get them, we've lost them because when you drink, or certainly for most of us, when we drink, we remain quite emotionally immature. Other people are learning resilience and getting on with life and growing up and taking responsibility. I got pissed. 
that's what I did. I checked out. Um, so when you come in, you know, I came in at, at you know, I got sober when I was 41. I mentally, nowhere near, probably about 15. <laughs> I mean, I was just, just not emotionally mature whatsoever. Um, and I thought, you know, I had successful jobs and I'd earned good money and I, you know, I, I, to the outside world, I, I achieved loads, but in, inside I was just mush. It was all just an act and, and, and a really bad act at that. Um, so, yeah, so that's why I've always stuck with it. And the 12-step philosophy is about learning to deal with life on life's terms as opposed to the petulant sort of, but I want it my way. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's very much about, like, you know, trying to just cope, which is why it was so handy to have that philosophy to take with me when I moved into the wilderness because I was not prepared for that at all. You know, I was fat. <laughs> I was not young. And uh, and I it was in a you know country foreign to me and uh, and I was doing this it wasn't an impetuous thing because you know it takes quite a lot of planning but I I was not a hiker I was not a camper I mean I'd once said to my now ex husband I'd said to him we'd stayed in a tent once and I and I woke up in the morning and I said if you ever put me in a tent again I will divorce you you know I was just not that kind of person. Uh, and it turned out, you know, I'm still not that kind of person, but I at least gave it a really good go for six months of living in a tent. I can assure you, I don't really want to do that very often again. Um, but it, yeah, you know, that ability to just break things down into the now and, and what do I need to do right now to survive this moment or to cope with this moment or to, to feel my feelings, acknowledge them and then and then let them pass over me, as it were, and then move on to the next next thing. Um, you know, the 12 steps, that's what they do. That's what they do for us. Um, because, it, you know, living out there, doing that kind of thing, I'm sure you know yourself, it's the loneliness can drive you, you know, absolutely batshit crazy. And and the physical pain, you know, I was constantly in pain, um, as you can imagine, you know, um, was something else. But it's the the those memories, that time, you've got nothing to interrupt your thinking, you know. So, it took me nearly 2,000 miles before I finally realised I had nothing left to think about. I was just gone. Everything was just gone. I dealt with everything. Um, and that's that level of serenity, that level of peace uh, was was extraordinary. But it took about 2,000 miles before I sort of met that, yeah. Isn't it interesting, though, how you know you often hear people have eureka moments whilst they're driving, in the shower, whilst running, etc. It's not because they're magic spaces. It's because we're not doing anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I have such a busy head, I cannot drive or wash or anything without the constant chatter. <laughs> so it's literally walking across America was was the only thing that ever exhausted it. I mean, now now I've done that, I can I can actually switch off my brain. I've learned how to do that. Where I just go, all right, enough now, stop. And forget. And, and I never knew how to do that before. Yeah. And was that the first journey you did? I think didn't you. Which came first, Mexico or Pacific? Oh no, the the the, the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to you Canada. Went, you was, started was, was Mexico, so I, mm -hmm. I just I just <laughs> that's my my disbelief in the best possible way. So you just decided, having had no, I mean, any sort yes. of background in adventurous activity. Mm -hmm. Hill walking? Well, no, I, I've always done slightly crazy things, but they've always involved motor vehicles of some kind. So, for example, I am the first woman to jet ski around Scotland, as far as I know. I was attempting to go around the whole of the UK, but Hurricane Katrina hit, so I never quite finished it. I did about 80%, 75, 80% of it. 
Uh, so I've always been a bit nuts. I mean, that in itself, I was drinking in those days and, and I drunkenly purchased a jet ski in blackout. I had no idea. And, and then just last of it, you know, I'll give this a go. Not knowing, not having a clue that actually this is a really hard thing to do. So I've always had that like hidden advent need or quest for adventure. I'd traveled the world as a kid. I've traveled the world as an adult. Uh, and I'd lived in some pretty tough and dangerous countries. And um, so I've always had that kind of, as I call it, an inner lemming gene, you know, that 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 need for adventure or um, extreme behavior. And I still have it, you know, that hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and uh, so I'd done that. I'd, I was the first person to quad bike around the UK. So I'd done that. Um, well, I'm trying to think what else. I'd tried snowmobiling. Um, but I'd never done anything on human. Like I say, I, I much prefer having a close relationship with my fridge than than outdoors <laughs> and uh and so I'd never done anything of that like sort of level of physicality in my life I'm a sofa surfing fridge magnet that's the best way to describe me so I quite like to go and do things you know and adventurous things but as long as it involves a machine that does all the work and I can sit there and enjoy the views and there's more context required here and you've done the disclaimer we've done the pre-chat so you can tell me as much as you're willing to and you might say nope move on but um uh, would you tell me anything about the industry you worked in or things like because to say you know you lived in dangerous countries and traveled the world that that's important i think nope move on <laughs> <I'll> just, <laughs> oh come on <laughs> I, I can't really go into details as to what i did um but i did travel a lot okay well, that's amazing well outside of work were you traveling mm-hmm. for fun yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I was very lucky in that with my career, I got a lot of holidays, as you can imagine. There's a lot of R&R time, so it's not your standard 22 or whatever you get in the UK. Um, so, yeah, so I would go, like I say, I'd go snowmobiling, um, jet fucking, um, uh, yes, I'd always go and go somewhere. I, I used to love Formula One. I mean, I still do love Formula One. So I'd go and watch a Formula One race, for example. So those sort of things. So yeah, I have, you know, people used to say, where have you been? And I used to say, it's easier to ask, where haven't I been? And for a long time, I used to say, I've never been to Scotland or South America. But these days, I can only say I've never been to South America. There's so much. My brain is just like, this is what I love. Oh, God. Um <laughs> Okay, I'm going to travel back to where we were. So the point is, physically, I mean, you know, to use your words, not in the best of shape. Well, these aren't your words. Not not in the best of shape, middle-aged, not really into the outdoors in an adventurous sense. And you just no. decided... I smoke 20 cigarettes a day. You know, I had to stop smoking to go and do this, which is a good thing, obviously, but it was tough at the time. But you just... Yeah. What made you think that was... a I asked this wholly kindly and deliberately tongue in cheek. What made you think that was a good idea? Because it looked so fun. <laughs> I'd watched a friend of mine had watched the film Wild. I'm the only person in the world that's done the Pacific Crest Trail that admits to have watching the film, which makes me a complete weirdo. Of course, they've all watched it, but they won't admit it. And um, and yeah, and my friend had watched it, and she banged on about it. And she was like, "You have to watch it. You'll love it." And I was like, "No, I really don't," because I get. I get really jealous about those sort of things. I hate other people having a good time and me not being part of it. And uh, and she kept banging on and banging on and banging on. So it was like, in the end, it was like, fine, 
fine. I'll cook you dinner. I'll cook your husband-to-be dinner, who, and I was going to be his best man at the wedding. And the three of us will watch it, and then you'll shut up about it. And, of course, I watched it, and I should have now go read the book. So then I read the book, and then I found myself reading more and more books. And, and that, I am, you know, I just, I need to know everything about everything. Once I start learning, I want to know more and more. And um, so I'd read all these books, and I was just, I thought the whole thing was amazing. You know, what, a, what an achievement, what an amazing thing to do. And then I go in the bath uh, one day and, and, and you know, you get those thumbnails, on, you know, looking for something to listen to or to watch. And, and one of the thumbnails pops up how to apply for a PCT permit, just randomly. And I was like, oh, I'll click on that, you know, clicked on it. And it's this guy and he's explaining the whole process. So, of course, then I Google, well, when does this happen? And, of course, it's that very day. And I was like, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon at this point. So I jump out of the bath. I run up to my office and uh, and I, I just start doing all these courses, like, you know, how to do fires, how to put out fires. And they had all these shovels. And I was like, I'm sure they don't carry a shovel. And, uh, you know, and how to deal with bears and leave no trace and all this, all this stuff I knew nothing about. And so I'm doing all these courses, go into the lottery, lo and behold, I get one of the, one of the tickets. And, and, you know, I, thousands of people apply and, and, and very few people get a ticket so I'm just like oh shit you know so I went back to friends you're not gonna believe this I've got a ticket to go and do that walk that that woman did and uh, and she was like oh right okay and I was like yeah I know and this is six months before you know you're leaving and the irony was you know the guy's YouTube video that I'd watched I bumped into him at the airport we flew we took the same flight into America he was queued up one place ahead of me at the immigration so I got to meet him so the person that, that had been part of my story unbeknownst to me you know and he was one of these fit outdoors young healthy hiking video type youtubers and I'm just sat there wobbling around going I am really out of my depth what am I doing and uh, and of course I met him on the trail very briefly as well and then a few weeks later, he he got he he went back because the pandemic had broken out, and because he was quite a public face, I think he he got a lot of vitriol um, in the comment section as as people are wont to do, you know, life comes full full circle as it were. And uh, so yeah, so he went back to the UK, and and I made the decision to carry on um, and carried on walking through the pandemic, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, I did. And um, so yeah, so the whole thing was a bit very very surreal in in that it's almost like every obstacle that I could have put in the way to stop me doing it just melted away. And I ended up with a visa and a, a you know, a permit to travel. And, and, and literally that happened the whole way through the, the hike. Um, you know, in the pandemic, um, they closed down the national parks and things. Um, not the national parks, like uh, the American system sort of still baffles me now. They have different statuses, but the three main national parks, one of which is Yosemite, they'd closed to all out to all visitors whatsoever. And just as the fastest four were getting right to the boundary, they said, We're gonna let the three hikers through. Um, but nobody else. And so they they opened up and de-restricted those areas just to allow the three hikers to, to carry on in their quest north, which was amazing considering the actual organization, the PCTA, was very against the through hiking community and had almost almost facilitated the online bullying that had gone on early on. Um, so the whole thing had had felt like quite a hot potato for a while. And and actually, in person, we got no abuse whatsoever. But online, that it was quite a, a nasty time. And I think that's fear for you, you know, people who are who are afraid and never acting at their best. And and the pandemic brought out, you know, a lot of fear in a lot of people. Um, but 
as an experience, of course, it, it made the PCT very unique because it was more like, you know, what, what the character Cheryl, Cheryl Strayed in real life, what she would have experienced in the 1990s was a very empty wilderness. And of course, as so did I. Um, so it was a very, very different experience and very unsociable experience. I'd go days without seeing another human being. Whereas if I was to do it next year, it's rare you'd have to sleep alone. It's it's rare you'd go a full day without seeing another human being. Whereas I think, you know, the longest between human contact was four and a half days. And I probably spent about 70% of my nights sleeping on my own in a tent um, with all of the critters going on around me. And, uh, and, and just sort of saying, please don't let me be eaten alive. Yeah, we'll come on to that because I'm curious. But... <laughs> um... But the, I'm I'm really interested in the six months. So you got your lottery win, mm-hmm. you were going, and then you had six months where I, you're very welcome to disagree with me here. Most in your position, given history, experience, headset, cigarettes, all of it, would turn around at some point in that six months and go, you know what? Nah, not a good idea. <laughs> no. I mean, most people do, you know, in that first month, it, it's, it, you know, in theory, 50 people a day can start in a normal year. So 50 people, they're all there nice and clean and shiny, and they've all got deodorant on, they smell grand. Uh, within a day or two, uh, everyone's looking like the wild woman of the West, um, or, or the equivalent, like a tramp, hiker trash, I think they call them. Everyone already stinks. And, and within a few days, within a few weeks, you know, those numbers are halved easily halved uh within a few weeks um whereas people realize it's not quite as they imagined it to be and actually um the pandemic hadn't quite started when i when i started and, and i'd ridden down with a lass who who was very gung-ho i'm going to do 25 miles today and it was like blimey if i do 2.5 i'll be happy and um and and very gung-ho very ambitious and, and very uh, you know, committed and, and they seemed very knowledgeable and I found it also terribly intimidating. And and actually as that the first 24 hours shook out, I met her coming back. She quit that first night, you know, and I, I'd managed seven miles, she'd managed eight. And I was like, oh blimey, well if you're quitting, how hard is this gonna be? Because you sounded so knowledgeable and so experienced and so good. And I'm really not. Um and then, you know, very quickly, once the pandemic and lockdown kicked in, which was sort of after the end of the first and second week, sometime around then that was out. And then lots of people were like, no, no, we're staying. The bullying then sort of peaked on on, on the Internet and things on the social media. Uh, and lots of people then quit and then a lot more quit. And you can never really be sure. Are they quitting because of the, the bullying or because of the pandemic or are they actually just quitting because it's all a little bit too much? Because it was horrific. And I remember... You know, the first, I think it was the day, I think it was the day three, I can't remember exactly, was the Hauser Creek day. And all I had to, all I had to do was walk up a path to climb about 1,200 feet, and then it dropped again by about 400 feet. Nothing in the scheme of the PCT. I swear to God, I thought I was going to die. Um, I had, I, all I could do was like walk 10, 10 meters and then I'd have to stop and try and get some oxygen into me. And everybody was overtaking me, you know, and I was like, hello, 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 hello. Um, and just dying, just dying doing this 1200 feet uphill. And, um, and I always remembered that, you know, that, that 
must have everybody got to the top and there was all sorts of things written in the sand you're like oh thank god and all these things and after that i think a lot of people just sort of went i can't do this or they'd already got injured that was the amazing thing was how many and, and i hate to be stereotypical but i'm going to be young men who had got into that gung-ho philosophy very early on with that i'm going to do 25 30 miles i'm i'm you know and they pick up an injury and you've got six months. There's no walking it off. You know, once you're injured, you're injured. So injury took out a lot. I think overambition took out a lot. And I, I genuinely don't know why I carried on because those first few days I hated them and it was the weather was awful and it was like living outdoors in Scotland and it was just being lashed by rain and everything that it could throw at me, throw at me. But I, I am a recovering alcoholic, so I do tenacity so well and I do suffering so perfectly after all you can't survive the hangovers that I've had unless you have those skill sets so in a way I was sort of made for it um and it was just that case of I also had that ego that said I can't I can't go back now I can't I've told everyone I'm doing this you know um I didn't think I'd make it the whole way early on I was like actually I'll just make it to the end of California if I'm lucky or I'll make it to the end of the desert or I'll you know I'll make it a distance but I refused. I refused to go back early on. But it was hard. It was unbelievably hard. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But I'm going to challenge it ever so slightly because you said lots of people quit and, you know, they had that mask of the pandemic to hide behind of ethically I've, you know, holier than that, I have made an ethical decision to leave. You could have left. You could have said to all your friends, all your colleagues, oh, no, ethically, I've got to come home. Was there, this is such a loaded question, which is not not good style. Was there a part of you that carried on for you rather than just in extrinsic ego? I, I, I mean, I carried on for me, absolutely. I mean, it was it was such a tough decision to make. And it was really when I came back and I was writing the book that I felt tremendous guilt for staying out there. It was... And I dealt with it in the book. Um, it was more because I, I was, I'm trying to think where I was now. Um, when I made the decision, so many people had quit. We were all at, at um, Mount Laguna, I think it's called, which is a little respite area. And and you can camp there and there's some cabins and hot showers and, and hot food and everything. And and But it, everything was locked down at that point. And, and that's where all the big discussions about are you staying, are you going, and people were talking about their own personal decisions. And I remember saying to the people I was talking to, I said, I'm going to keep going for a while. Until they throw us off, until they make this illegal, I'm going to carry on. And it was more a case of, you know, I I had a rental back in the UK and I'd given up my rental, I'd put my stuff in storage. So practically it would have been really hard to come back. But I did actually expect at some point this was going to be made illegal, in which case I could live with it because it was out of my control. And there's nothing, I wasn't going to break the law, not, not in America. 
not with their present sentences. Um, but I, it was a case of whilst it's still lawful, I'll carry on. So there was, and I desperately wanted to carry on. You know, the, it, absolutely, I wanted to carry on. So it was, it was a very tough, tough, tough decision to make. In the end, it was, it was fifty-one reasons for, forty-nine against. So, for someone who, if if there was someone out there who'd been, you know, interested in walking and then running and travelling for 10 years, etc., you know, the PCT might feel like logical progression, something they want to go and do. What was actually fun? If you were day in, day out, rain and hills. Yeah, what was actually fun? The most fun of it has been talking about it since. <laughs> like, there, I've... I've since come across a phrase called type two fun, whereas you do things that actually build up your self-esteem. And it's only afterwards in the retelling that you learn to laugh and smile and take real pleasure in your accomplishment. So walking the PCT is a pure example for me of type two fun. But that said, there it varied over time. Obviously, six months is a lot of time. Lots of things change over six months. But there'd be a period of my day, I remember commenting to some guy, I think we we're in the northern part of California at the time. I said, some, you know, I'd get up at, say, four or five in the morning and just stop. It'd take me 45 minutes to get going uh, and then just start walking. And the first hour is really uncomfortable. Your shoes don't fit. Your packs are all lopsided. And it takes a while to get everything tightened up and settled in. Everything bodily hurts. Like the pain on my legs and my feet. Were, was and my hips was tremendous I felt like an octogenarian you know with really bad arthritis um and then about you know I'd stop and have second breakfast and then I'd get going again and there would be a sort of period between 10 and eleven thirty, where I'd just get graceful and I'd just walk and I just my brain was clear and I was just at one with the universe, as it were, or as at one with my surroundings and feeling so comfortable and so calm. And like I say, that that was a long time to get those really extended periods of time. And then I'd stop for lunch and then it was all downhill after that, to be honest. It was just battling against endless pain. Um, so those that was the fun part. The other fun part was, you know, meeting other people is lovely. Um, and because you've got, you know, you all stink, you all look awful. Um, the men are all bearded, you know, but they're, you know, bedraggled bearded now. And so they, and you're, you're just, oh God, just grim. You know, you look like you've just literally flown out of a wheelie bin. And, um, but there is something about that connectedness and that, that being at once. So you meet some really interesting people and, and very quickly those barriers that you don't, that you have, like you can have a colleague that you've worked with for years and you really know nothing about them at all beyond the absolute superficial and ditto neighbours. But when you're out in the wilderness, all of a sudden you can talk very deeply about some of your most sensitive issues and your most vulnerable matters. And and that is, you know, that's I think where so much healing happens. You know, I remember I was for about a week or so, I was, I was walking with another couple and they and they were both divorced as well. And, and, and our divorces had all happened at a sort of similar time, which was, you know, several years before we were doing this walk. And um, But they were also the left behind party. You know, they hadn't made the decision to end the marriage. And I think, you know, it gives you a very different perspective on divorce. And and we were sort of, you know, talking about, you know, how our mental health, all of us, had, had collapsed in that process. And, and, and it was a real dark night of the soul that went on for a very long time afterwards. And, you know, those very raw, very vulnerable conversations happen very, very quickly. 
And I think but that's what kickstarts so much of the mental healing of, of doing something like going out into the wilderness. That, you know, the, the film Wild and Hollywood always makes you know, it sound like you've gone from lost to found and, and you, you then live happily ever after. I For me, that wasn't, I didn't have like a road to Damascus moment out there. And I laugh because I, towards the end of my hike in, in Washington, I was hiking with a guy called Jeff and, and we were just going to do the last section towards the Canadian border. And we'd met up with his friends at a trail road and they brought a load of picnic stuff and we were chatting to them. And one of them had asked me, you know, how has this changed you? And I was like, nah, not changed me at all. And then Jeff and I walked off back into the wilderness and and uh, and, and Jeff said, oh, you know, I don't think it's changed me either. I was like, nah, it's not done anything for me. Nothing. You know, you hear about all these people who find themselves and they are at one with the world. I was like, nothing, can't wait for this to be over. It's been hideous. And we carried on. And it's only now, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, coming up well over two years since I started, that, yeah, it had a huge impact on my mental well-being. But the thing it's changed is my self-esteem and my self-respect. I've I've never had great self-esteem, never have. And, and again, a very traumatised, very damaged child. And, and, uh, and now, you know, I can get through anything. I, I had to get through a really awkward, awful situation a few months back and and I remember someone saying to me you know what just break the day down into sections just like you do on a through hike and at the end of each stage of that day just say to yourself and I walked across America on my own and and that was like yeah you can't take that away from me you know that that has given me so much self-respect and self-esteem no one can take that away from me and because it's a it's not it, it, it totally, I, I did it, you know, and I did it my way and I didn't do it perfectly. And initially when, when I first came back, I felt really, you know, like all I could focus on were the bits that I hadn't done well. And and I really gave myself quite a hard time, you know, like this, the worst part of the Sierra after Forrester and York Glen Mountain, all of that. I didn't do it well. I, you know what I mean? And, and there were other bits that I didn't do well. And all I'd do was beat myself up for the bits I did badly. But around me, everybody's just like, wow, you walked across America. You know, they're not judging how perfectly you did this. And because I was older and slow, you know, the vast majority of people are in their sort of late 20s, 30s, and they've got the funds to do it. And they've still got the physical fitness. And uh, and and so they're all zoom, 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 and I'm plod, 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 you know. Um, and so a lot of it was that this realizing that I compare myself so much to other people in a way that's so detrimental to my own mental well-being and it was only after a few months that I realized you know what I hiked my own hike and I and I literally did I do it pretty no did I do it ugly yes did I get to the end absolutely did most people know and 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 so therefore I'm I'm okay you know I've done it okay (laughs) and um and it's you know it's not an easy thing to do, but and I but I'd do it again. I'd do it again because once I got through that depression, you know that that sort of re-entry shock of you like of coming back to the UK, um, and then once all of you know that that depression of it all being over lifted, and 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 then came up the other side. You know my mental health has never been so robust. It really, really is robust, and I do, I am very proud of myself for what I achieved. Yeah, I mean that's clear and. I'm not even going to say, you know, it's clear and that's amazing. And it, it's incredible what it can do to people. But I, again, I'm going to challenge you because it's fun and you seem to enjoy it too. But you said you're never, you're never going to get going camping again if you can help it. And then you just said that you'd do it again. 
Absolutely, absolutely. That's the whole thing is I do it again to fast forward to the the, the warm fuzzy feeling that comes afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, you know, I would camp again. If I'm, always, if I'm honest, I would camp again. Um, and I would do it again. I'd love to do it again um, if I got the opportunity. Because I... I've come to the conclusion that and I, I think it's probably true of most human beings, but I know it's certainly true of most women I know, that we are programmed to forget pain, especially exquisite pain. And therefore, you know, the reason women have more than one children is because of this programming. Because you listen to any woman, they'll be like, I'm not doing that again. And then they have a baby and they're like, oh, I want 10. And you're like, what? Um, and I think it's the same with through hiking. And I think, you know, they, they do say you either do one or you do three um, in America. And I would, I would love to because I have forgotten the smell. I have forgotten the pain. It took, I've got one dead toe still. I don't think the feeling's ever going to come back. But it took six months for me to be able to get up out of bed in the morning and stand on my own feet without screaming the house down. You know, it was just unbelievable pain once I stopped. Um, and you forget, I forget, I forget all the indignity of it. And another part of me is I want to do it because I want to do it better. You know, like I feel like that was the trial run in a way. I want to, to, to put those skills that I learned back into practice. And I miss the views. I mean, America is just gobsmacking because of its sheer size. You know, you get to the top of a mountain, do your 360, and there is no sign of, of that it's ever been conquered as land. You know, there's nothing, there's no telegraph poles, there's no... And with the pandemic on, there was no planes in the sky. You know, it, you felt so small. You felt like a little ant. Um, and I miss that. You know, I, I mean, I get to see a lot of the UK right now. And I love the green and I love the flowers. And I, you know, it's May and it's beautiful. But part of me really hankers against being able to just stand on top of a mountain, gasp for air and, uh, and think, oh, my Lord, you know, this is just mind-blowing um and I love mountains they make me cry so once I got you know well into sort of um the Sierras and everything just unbelievable beauty why do mountains make you cry I don't know they always have I, th I think it's just the the sheer vulnerability of the you know feeling something so much bigger than yourself they um like the desert desert terrified me you know the first 700 miles was desert and I was just terrified of the rattlesnakes and um, there's little pockets where you do find bears as well. Obviously, it's further up, high up ground. But, um, you know, the rattlesnakes and the scorpions and the dehydration, threat of no water and all of that, you know, the desert terrified me. But once I'd left the desert behind, um, then the bears terrified me. But I just, I, what I really wanted was <laughs> something you just can't really do in England is I just wanted to walk for days in an endless forest. And of course, all of those dreams come true, you know, and, and just being, you know, then the forest in Northern California versus the forest in Washington, very, very different types of forest. And, and I just loved that, that the noises and the smell and, and, and all of that. Um, yeah, amazing. So you're not done? No, God, no. Um, it, it's it's like everything else the funds and are the problem um so i've got another adventure that i'm i'm nearly there and committed to but it's one that i can actually earn money and do at the same time which is quite important uh but if i won the lottery god i'd be gone you know i'd be gone i'd, I'd put off this expedition and, and go and do the cdt just because it's there you know and on it can i do it it's bigger badder longer harder 
Um, and I'd love to, cool. because it, I think, but that's part of, you know, I mean, it's a very common trait amongst people that are addicts and alcoholics is that no, it's never enough. Whatever we do, it's never enough. Um, and that urge for more is, is incessant. But would you, to what extent do you just think that's human nature? I mean, that word addiction gets thrown around like, oh, I'm, adre- I'm an adrenaline junkie or oh, I'm addicted to running. Like maybe we are some of us, but I think there is that need for more. Yeah, I mean, with addiction, that's different from, I know we use the term loosely. With addiction, it's very much about compulsive and instant gratification. So the least amount of effort for the most amount of reward in the in the quickest amount of time. So, you know, when I drank, I drank to get this checked out feeling and this warm fuzzy feeling and that decreases over the years you know that that's that and and drugs you know drugs aren't a big part of my story um and I certainly never tried you know most of the common drugs but you know it's the same thing that they this this sense of being together and and whole and happy and content that's what drugs give you initially and that that period of time that you spend feeling okay shrinks as your addiction takes hold when you talk about adrenaline junkies, it's just more of a, a faddish word um, because you actually have to do the work first. You have to do the hardship first, and then you get the self-esteem, the high afterwards. With drink and drugs, it's the opposite. You know, we're, we're, we're getting the, the good stuff first and then dealing with the hangover, the consequences, the ramifications, the, the reality second. So it destroys your self-esteem. So they're actually polar opposites when you actually break down how it affects your your behavior, your mindset, and the, and the long term implications. So, with the alcoholic, there is this um, sort of personality of nothing's quite right, nothing's quite good enough, and 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 they're always trying to fix it or or go beyond. And and it is a uh, learning to get comfortable in your own skin and learning to be okay with the now is a is pretty much what the twelve step philosophy teaches us is, is dealing with how I feel right now rather than how I want to feel or how I think I should feel um and 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 teaching us to do the work first and get the reward second as opposed to the other way around which is where our instincts have taken us so we all have human instincts you're absolutely right but with with genuine addicts and alcoholics our instincts are rampant and way off beam and they are you know working against us rather than working for us does that make yeah, sense yeah so, totally so yeah so no adrenaline junkie you know it's a, it's a nice snappy term but actually they're not they enjoy the the outcome of doing something so thrilling um whereas yeah it's not quite as self-destructive maybe dangerous but not as self-destructive no, but i think even if um either i think at roller coasters you know, I'm, I'm a big, I, I'm anti-adrenaline junkie as a concept, and that's a whole different ramp yeah. for another day. But it was really interesting what you meant, uh, what you said about type two fun. You know, it's something we talk about a lot in the mountaineering community and the adventure community. And I'm going to get some flack for saying this probably, but I just think type one fun is largely hedonistic. You know, it's the pursuit yeah. of that hit, that dopamine hit, and that can be shopping. It can be roller coasters, it can be anything. But type two fun, that's where we really find opportunities for growth. And I don't know if it resonates with you at all, but things like long distance hiking and mountaineering and even short term stuff like a run or cold water swimming. I this is full scale amateur philosophy, but I just feel like they teach us the kind of cheesy line like this too shall pass. 
you know, they teach us, mm. to, you know, this will end. And actually that pursuit of going through it and seeing it through to the end, you know, is this really painful, mm. et cetera, et cetera. I know it's going to be over and it's going to feel amazing. You become, I don't want to say superhuman, but you become resilient. That, I think that's that's like this is what I would like to go and do in the future is, is actually go and talk to especially women about this where and I know we we briefly discussed that um, you know I'm very happy talking about feminist issues when you're born a girl in in, in almost all cultures right from the get go you're treated as more fragile and that the world is a more dangerous place for you. And that flies in the face of so many statistics as well. As, as a bloke, you're more likely to get hit than I am. Um, and and yet, they, you know, even it happened as I was walking across America, this man pulls over and, and he sees me hitchhiking, which is, you know, pretty common in garden out in America. And he pulls over and he says, oh, you need to be careful, lassie, you know, woman, whatever he was calling me, girl, gal. And, uh, you know, there's a serial killer around here. And I was like, okay. And he's picking, he's picked up four women already this year. I was like, oh, blimey, there's a pandemic on and everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, yeah, and then he drove off. And, and that's the kind of stuff that girls hear right from the young age, you know, that you, your brother can go out because he's a boy. But as a girl, you, you're special and you've got to be nurtured and protected. And, you know, the world's a dangerous place for you. And I, and I, I still hear this now as a, as a woman, you know, I was at work the other week and somebody said, oh, you know, we shouldn't be sending women off to do this job. And I just looked and I said, I am so tired of hearing you can't because you're a girl. And I said, you know, we've had that our entire lives. We, it's so it's so confining you know and, and most of and i've met so many people that you know uh girls fun is like you say that tight one fun it's it's going and having a party going to the cinema get buying shopping you know going shopping buying new clothes whatever um and actually but they're dealing with insecurity issues and and when you've got low self-esteem and low self-respect and low levels of, well, I mean, they probably have high levels of resilience, but it opens you up to being in all sorts of abusive relationships. And and so therefore, if you're going to make the world a dangerous place perceivably for us, then we're going to end up relying on people who are actually quite dangerous for us. Um, And and I see this time and time and time and time again. And, And the way out, like you say, is, yeah, a roller coaster will give you an instant adrenaline hit and a dopamine hit but it won't work on your self-esteem. And, and if you want to like yourself, it means you've got to have self-esteem to be working with. And, and, and if we're going to keep saying to women, yeah, but not you because you're a woman. You can't do this because you're a woman. Not be, you know, you and right from fairy tale books, you know, we were the ones rescued from the burning of power, you know, and it's just that constant message that keeps us afraid and and not capable of going out and doing things and that self-consciousness but what will people think of me you know a lot of my early concerns when I was through hiking was how bad I smelt you know and what I looked like and what what would happen to my hair and would my teeth fall out you know they were all vanity things and I'm not even pretty you know <laughs> so um so there's there's that whole agenda going on you know it's very much that that system that that stops us doing things unless we've got a friend you know we've all heard that myth about women go to the toilet in pairs we don't by the way but everybody believes we do (laughs) because even our toilets are dangerous places for us to go you know it's ridiculous and um you know so that you know and I get a lot as oh well as a woman as a woman you're very brave and it's a woman I'm not really doing anything different from my male colleagues but 
but you're perceiving that it's it's I'm what am I am I more brave am I less brave and um you know and, and I do again in my book I explore this when I was in um an area called Donna Valley it doesn't sound right but anyway um and and it had been a quite historical event that this several families had got locked in the snow that had been a really bad uh, winter and uh, and a lot of people had perished and there's rumors of cannibalism and all sorts there's a lot of history and um and anyway they got out and we the only reason we know about this is because the women kept diaries but the men are given the credit for the story and and it's like how what you know so so it's left me thinking well were the women more brave or less brave because they were women you know they were there too you know and and how we deal with those gender stereotypes because when you talk about adventurers it's the same as alcoholics they're almost men gray-haired draggly beards you know always that's the stereotype and 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 as a woman you know i am not that stereotype and uh, and for either one for it, for either of these things so you know it's, it's quite a privilege to be able to talk about it and, and break down some of those myths but that i mean there's there's a lot that's interesting there and often i'm finding with these particular parts of conversations the best thing i can do is shut up and listen and um and respond if there is anything either questions or opinions but we got so the lady who works with me Orla, she's the producer and she sent me these stats in advance of International Women's Day, off not in front of anybody, just saying, here's how many of your films feature women and here's how many of your podcasts feature women. And I went, oh, shit, when I saw the stats. And I said, right, okay, that's what we're going to do this year is we're going to even it out. But she and I, and I don't, you know, Orla can speak for herself on this stuff, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but we, it's hard. It's really hard. And that is not, I need to be super clear, I believe, and I'm happy for you to disagree with me, anyone to email and disagree with me, I believe that thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of women are doing amazing, incredible, adventurous things in all corners and aspects of life around the world, from frontline surgeons to pilots to mountaineers. It's just women aren't as interested in talking about it as men, and women don't feel the need to get websites as often as men. Obviously, you know, it's a bell curve, Um Lots of women do, but the amount of emails we get from men saying, can I come on your podcast versus women? And that's the telling one. Getting in touch with people and finding them online and reaching out specifically. I reckon for every one woman who gets in touch to say, are you interested in an interview? We get 10, 20 maybe men. And again, I can't speak for all women, but I know certainly in my childhood, we were taught not to boast. It's unladylike to talk about yourself. It's unladylike to boast. So like you say, we're part of the problem that we don't push ourselves forward. And we see this in every avenue of life. It's not just an adventure. Um, You see it in work. You know, it's a well-known thing that if there's a promotion to be had, a bloke will say, yeah, I can do about 60% of that. I'll apply. A woman will say, oh, I can't do that. Can't do all of it, so I won't apply. And the and and we're holding, you know, holding ourselves back. And so yeah, so you know, it's one of the things that I am keen to push is is the fact that you know, through hiking gives off this illusion of it's for young, fit men. But actually, when you look at the women that that get to the end, we look so strong at the end. The men look like they've just come; they're emaciated in their skin and bone, and the women look so powerful. You know, we, we still retain some kind of shape. Um, our body fats lend ourselves to extreme long distance uh, hiking, and and those endurance ultra races, ultra running. We are better or able to compete equally with men. It's one of the few places that we can. 
because we've got this, you know, physiologically, our, our bodies take care of the long distance part of things. So a lot of it is societal. A lot of it is, like you say, you know, we're, we're taught from a young age, it is it is not okay for you to put yourself forward. It's unladylike. And, you know, it's that whole, you know, if men, if men are, you know, women are bossy, men are assertive, you know, and, and those same behaviours, but they're treated different ways. And that, that mindset will carry on. I think where, you know, going back to Cheryl Strayed and, and Wild, if you look at the stats around the Pacific Crest Trail itself, you know, it was 90% men, 10% women. And then that film came out and we're now at 60-40. Uh, what you're still seeing is women doing it with men. It's very rare that women are doing it are starting genuinely alone. Not and not impossible, but it's rare. They they start with in a group, and you'll see them on the Facebooks like, oh, I don't want to start on my own. Is there anybody else starting this day and that sort of thing? So we've still got that that sense of needing a walking companion, um, and that sense of vulnerability. Whereas men are much more like, oh, I'm doing this on my own, and you know, much more out there. There's a lot more bravado involved and. So, you know, but the stats have changed radically because, again, Cheryl Strayed. And if you look at the history of Wild, you know, and it was Reese Witherspoon that, that produced it and funded it and, and, and got it out there. And her, her Hollywood film company is all about strong women or women's stories or women's issues. And, and so, therefore, she is changing those stereotypes and that's having a knock-on effect on the adventure world. Yeah. Um, so the zeitgeist is changing, but it's not there yet. Absolutely. And I think it's it's really, I could do this for hours, this particular part of this conversation, because I do feel like I learn a lot. You know, I this is something maybe we shouldn't unpack in detail because it'll get dull. But if you were a man, and I didn't know, by mm -hmm. the way, I had to go and do my research document and I was like, is this, because this, there's no name attached. I was like, is that, I just assume, and I had, I will admit, assumed you were a man. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. AA meetings, Pacific Coast, of course, it's a man. Probably forty-five, you know. That I that was the yeah. picture. But yeah. also, um, the point I was going to make was around. I've got a friend who I said to her, she's a world-class climber, and I said, "Why aren't more women climbing big mountains?" And she said, "It's the wrong question. The question is, why do men feel the need to?" And mm -hmm. I'd love to know. I mean, it's not she was being deliberately. It's not necessarily the wrong question, but. Mm, turn it on its head no I think it's great I mean we see it in every walk of life I mean let, just bringing it back to the field of alcoholism which is something else I know well you know rehab more men will go to rehab than women and, and it's partly to do with access to funds women are less invested in by family by society by you know community um and so they're more a family is more likely to pay for a son to go to rehab than they are to pay for a daughter if a woman has alcohol or drug problems and she has children she is heavily condemned by comparison to a man who has children and has addiction problems so these double standards are, are replicated you know and addiction and alcoholism is just as extreme as a, a you know extreme sports and and so we but we see the same sort of common issues but i think with we you know we are biologically destined to have children so you, you know you can have children and bugger off and go and climb a mountain and, and nobody bats an eyelid at that or they may do but not so much woman has child leaves them at home to go and climb a mountain social services have questions you know and so there's there's that whole issue of if you want you have to make a choice quite early on do i want children or do i want to pursue a career and not all careers lend themselves to having a big interruption. Um, 
it's getting better, but it's not better. But how do we solve that? So, oh, sorry, go on. No, exactly. How do we solve it? I, I really, and again, it's it's a part of it is is um, it is solving itself because more women are getting out there, and the media, like you say, you've made a conscious effort to now redress the balance and 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 chase down and hunt down women that are doing you know extreme sports and adventure sports to make them more pronounced. And you need to see that with the media. We're seeing it on adverts and telly, you're seeing a lot more people of colour and, and, and people who aren't, you know, the, the ideology of, of yesteryear. So you're seeing that there's an active process of, of pushing people that were previously hidden or, or non, not looked at, pushing them forward. And then I think that's all part of it. So that you normalise it because we all need role models. And Cheryl Strayed ended up becoming quite a role model for me. The chief criticism I hear about her is that she only walked a thousand miles. Well, she only walked a thousand miles on her own in the 90s without the technology that I enjoyed. So I'm not doing the woman down, you know? She 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 has been a trailblazer for the rest of us to go out there and, and try it. And I single-handedly credit her with that shift from the 9010 to the to the 60-40. Um, so those are those we need role models and we need you know more publicity and we need to be talked about so it's normalized rather than yeah. treated as you know, something unique, special and different. Yeah, totally. And obviously, I mean it's again entry level um gender studies to say we need role models that look like us. You know, whether that's but funds. Funds are always the, the key issue. You know, uh, a man going and asking for a bigger pay rise is much more natural than a woman because we have to, we have this concept, we have to deserve it. And we don't think we deserve it. You know, that, that esteem issue, and it, it's over and over and over. So getting the funds together is quite hard. It, it really is. Um, and it's, it, there's that, you know, there's still that mentality of, you know, I watched a brilliant documentary of, of, the the women who went they got the name of the race now but it was a sailing race around the world and 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 they put in an all-woman's crew and it was a brilliant documentary about it but all the competing teams referred to the girls the girls the girls and actually the women that were part of this sailing they all talked themselves as women you know and there's that still that you don't want to be with the girls we're still second rate we're still not as good as you know um, and I think in you know in certain endurance we are just as good as, but it's just not as well recognised. That's totally true. And I think it's also about we're drifting into philosophy, which I adore, but maybe everybody else doesn't. But it's around what do people want to be called? And that you've just nailed it. You know, they were calling themselves women. If somebody said to me, and some of, I was about to say lads, some of the lads I work with, oh, the boys are arriving at. I, we call ourselves the boys. We call ourselves the lads. You know, I don't feel in any way degraded or inf- infantis. Is that the word? Infantilized. Something like that. Yeah. So, Infantilized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them. Made to feel like a child. <laughs> but it's not yeah. okay for me to wonder. Yeah. Oh, I interviewed this interesting girl yesterday. And um, and if and if yeah. and if we can't see, you know, that the difference should be obvious. If it isn't, then well, we need to do some thinking. But. There's so much of it that's fascinating. I mean, my final point, which I wanted to make around something you said with who's doing the PCT and how and women starting is I'd love to know the statistics. And I don't know if this has been surveyed or anything like that around whether or not women aren't starting solo because they don't feel safe to 
or whether it's because they want to go with someone, whether that's another woman, whether that's a man, because I think that men, their ego will force a lot of them to want to go on their own because, by the way, you know, men, they're big big and brave and strong. I don't know if you know, and also they don't cry. And, you know, I can do this on my own and break myself and wear that as a badge of honour. And it's I think I think you know it is that for us the public space we are we are indoctrinated in it's less safe for us than it is for you right from early it's not but we are given that perception and uh, and so yeah so that it's seen as an inhibitor you know I didn't know anybody that would go with me anyway and I now know the worst thing you can do is start with somebody because very quickly you've got your pace they've got their pace and a row ensues because they don't want to do it your way and you don't want to do it their way so most relationships are going to break down pretty damn quick um and and or they're going to have to really work on compromises and and so on and so forth so you're better off going your lane because eventually you will find obviously not in a pandemic year but in a non-pandemic year you will find people that are of your ability and of your pace and the, and the few times I was in groups, you know, I went into the Sierra in, in a group and I deliberately hung back to wait for a group to form and then went in because that was safety in numbers, which totally good advice. We disbanded the first night because everybody had their own way of doing things. Um, and and, and the, the couple that were a couple couple, they weren't a couple couple, but they were together. They'd started together. They were hiking together. You know, they had the ultimate authority of what we were going to do because there was two of them, whereas we were all individuals. Um, and then the other couple, they they fell apart that night. And, and so, yeah, so you're better off going on your own, hiking your own hike, and you will meet lots of people along the way. Mm. Um, you'll have a better time of it as a consequence because it's miserable when you're trying to keep up with people that are faster than you. It's it's really miserable. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's and, – and also at the end of it, you know, you did it for yourself and that, that no one can take that away. Yeah. Amazing. Right. We're well over time. We're drifting into armchair philosophy. I'm going to leave it. But um, I have, no I, I end every um, conversation with two questions. So um, interpret them however you wish. Uh, what, mm. what scares you? The only thing that scares me, I only have two things that scare me. Um, one is drinking again because of everything that I could lose. And, uh, and two, the only thing that really scares me is running out of money because then I wouldn't be able to enjoy my life in the, in the way that I enjoy it. And, uh, and uh, you know, money is a constant threat. But, uh, you know, so far we are surviving. Um, so, yeah, so those, those are the only two things. But that's really easy not to be afraid when you're living in a beautiful little cottage in the Cotswolds. You know, a high crime here is someone nicking the daffodils. You know, it's just really not a dangerous place, is it? Um, so, yeah, so I'd I think, you know, I'd love to go and actually live and do the CDT and go and be scared ridiculously by grizzly bears they are scary um what brings you hope what brings me hope that i genuinely you know if i look back i've been i'm coming up six years sober and uh, and if i look back in the last six years i could not have predicted almost all the things that have happened in the last six years uh so my hope is that it will continue to be as unpredictable and as rewarding as the last six years are. And that, and that's so I live in hope that, that life will continue to amaze me. Um, when I stopped drinking, not that you ever really stop, but, you know, when I 
made the commitment to to uh, go to AA, you know, I was terrified of what life without drink would be because I'd never experienced life without drink. Um, and I was wrong on absolutely everything I believed. And so I hope that I carry on being wrong on some really old destructive beliefs that still don't serve me. Yeah. Amazing. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you Lovely. so, so Thank much. You. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk or follow along on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced by Ola Omori, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.